So the Bible reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 4. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the, the letters uh, to the various churches, uh, and then today we're looking at what heaven looks like. So the passage is in your leaflet. It's also up on the screen if you want to read through. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Well, so on um, Monday, Narelle and I became grandparents. Yeah! Um, our eldest daughter, Bronwyn, gave birth to a beautiful little girl, Winona. We are so delighted. Here are two photos. There you go. There you go. It's just so beautiful. So you'll, in, you'll, forgive, you'll forgive me this um, grandparents' boast. Grandparent. Whoa! We think she is perfect, and we are utterly besotted. Now, if you haven't yet done it, it is quite a thing to hold a new life. Um, I wonder if you've ever had a life-shaping moment of awe regarding God. For me, as joyful as last Monday was, that wasn't my life-shaping moment when my inner conviction about God as creator was utterly affirmed as true. It was, in fact, when I held my firstborn, Bronwyn, who were known as mum, in my hands as a sort of young dad for the first time. And I remember holding this little slippery life, <laughs> so precious, so perfectly made, and just knowing with joy and delight, being innerly convicted, of course, that God was a marvelous creator. 
Um, now, of course, I already knew that God was the creator, but in my hands was this gift, this, this new life, precious. And I was her dad. And yet I was her dad. It wasn't, of course, me who made her. I didn't form her in the womb. I didn't knit together her DNA. I didn't stretch out her fingers. I didn't put those cute little dimples in her knuckles and all those beautiful little things. And holding her in that moment, it was for me this moment of awe, of just being utterly astounded of the glory of the Lord as the creator of life, that he, he is worthy of praise. Now maybe you have had the same sort of experience or maybe, maybe it's been something else, maybe it's been another experience, this life-shaping moment when you have been kind of stopped in your tracks and you're just convicted about the reality of the Lord and just in awe of him. Now for some people it's an experience of creation that is just life-defining. You, you know, a moment in your life when you can remember gazing in the, into the vastness of the Milky Way on this star-filled night or, and seeing a meteor shower perhaps or, or some jaw-dropping view as the sun sets or rises or, as if the sun itself was shouting out and declaring the glory and the majesty of God. God gives us these moments in our lives when he convinces us that what we have been told about him really is true that above our creation is someone who is truly glorious, truly worthy of praise and glory and honor. Now today, God opens our eyes to this, not through a majestic sunset, not being stunned at the gift of human life, but through a door into heaven. So have your Bibles open or it's your leaflets open, the passage is there. This is the start of John's second vision from chapters four to 16. John is the last surviving apostle. He is exiled on the Greek island of Patmos off the coast of Turkey. And there, surrounded by turbulent seas and waters, John somehow is transported into heaven and it is revealed to him what must soon take place, that is the judgments and the wrath of God that he is going to pour upon the world to put down evil once and for all. It's revealed to John a revelation of what must soon take place after this. And the this is chapters four and five, the description of heaven as it is now. John is transported into heaven, he sees this and then he's told what must happen afterwards. In other words, through this chapter, we, we get to enter heaven. We get to see what it is like. It's a few steps removed, right? It's not we who are entering heaven, um, but we do so through John's words. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of heaven. The Bible has several pictures, and it culminates in that great picture of Revelation 21 and 22 of what heaven will be. Chapters four and five describe what heaven is like now. But before we dive in, right, a, a, a first a very quick word on how to understand what John describes. Apocalyptic literature tries to describe the indescribable. It describes things, in other words, that we haven't seen before, things that are different to our experience, and therefore it will use language like there appeared in heaven one like, 
or had the appearance of someone like. It has to use this word like because there's nothing in our experience which exactly fits uh, the, what's being described. And what that means is it's important not to get bogged down in the details, but what we have to do is to try and see the overall picture of what's being described. In other words, see the woods rather than the trees or just the leaves on the trees. Okay, because what's being described is another reality. It's more real than what we see and encounter because that reality determines ours and that's the reality that's going to last, right? So, he's, we have this revelation put in terms describing, that we're familiar with, describing what that reality is like, okay? John is in the spirit, he sees before him a door standing open to heaven. The door isn't open to everyone, but it is open to John, and, and through John's recording of what he saw, it's open to us. And in it, we see in picture language what heaven is like now, a revelation, a revealing of ultimate reality. And the first thing that John sees is a throne. Here before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Now that word throne comes up 14 times in this chapter in 11 verses, it is the theme. God is seated on his throne. This is profound. When we look around, sometimes we can think God must not be real. Sometimes we can think what on earth is God doing? We can wonder, is he really on the throne? Because it doesn't seem like he is. In the first century, people were thinking this. They knew the power and the might of the Roman emperor on his throne, right? Whereas Jesus' followers, his little church, by comparison, seemed so powerless, like a little you know, paper boat in a turbulent sea. In our life, we can worry that things are getting out of control. We see people who seemed to have the power to pull the strings, the Vladimir Putins of the world. We, although we know he's not really in charge, but he has immense power still and he's de destroyed thousands of lives and millions around the world are impacted. And you know, we could think, is it the case that the world is really just a survival of the fittest in the end? Well, gaze into heaven with John because here's heaven's perspective on the contrary there is a throne and there is someone, the Lord, seated on it. He's seated, he's not pacing, he's not frantic, he's not stressed out walking up and down because things are getting beyond him, he is seated. He is ruling. There is a throne and then there is someone on it. And that raises the question, well why is the world seemingly out of control? We're gonna cover that next year in chapters six to 17. But for now, it's enough to be reassured. There is a throne. Someone is on it. Okay. And now comes the description. Now, we, we know no one has seen God. John chapter 1, verse 18. God is spirit. John chapter 3. So the description is not exact, but we're told that the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. It's the closest description he can get to of something indescribable. Jasper is this multicolored stone, like opal, really, reflecting, dazzling, beautiful colors of light. Ruby, of course, is there, we know it. These are precious, dazzling gems, refracting and reflecting a dazzling display of light. 
And encircling the throne is a rainbow that is shining like an emerald. The rainbow, we recall, is a sign of God's eternal promise not to destroy the world again by water. Shining like an emerald, this promise of mercy that we're reminded of by the rainbow, this promise of mercy is so glorious that it shines and it adorns the throne of God. And that means whatever judgments will come from the throne, because that is what happens when someone sits down on a throne, they pronounce judgments. Whatever judgments will come from the throne, we remember that judgment isn't the end goal for God because of this rainbow of emerald. The shining glory of who God is in his mercy is signaled here and that his plans go beyond judgment. That's what we're reminded of in seeing the rainbow which dazzles, is dazzling like an emerald. So now from verse three, John directs our attention outwards from the throne. Now I have to say this surprised me. Um, How is it that only one verse is given to describe the throne and him who is seated on it? Surely God deserves more airtime. But in moving out, John describes circle after circle of beings around the throne and all those beings are directed inwards to the one on the throne. And their actions, what they do, and their voices reveal the glory of the one that they apprehend in the center and they also show us what our response should be. So we learn from them. First up are the 24 elders on 24 other thrones which surround the central throne. And we think, why 24? Okay, best guess is that they signal, signify sorry, the people of God. They, they are represented by their leaders. Before Christ, leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, and after Christ, they're represented by the 12 apostles. This is a symbolic picture of God's people who representatively are there, and the thrones and the crowns tell us that they are reigning with him now in heaven. They are dressed in white. Their white robes tell us that they have been purified. They have been washed from the dirt of their sin. They have been washed in the blood of the lamb. We'll get to that next week. And also they are victorious. They have remained faithful to Jesus till the end and they are the ones who are there. But please see, they are there. They are there in heaven. Now that is an immense encouragement, isn't it? It is a motivation to make sure that each one of us is washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and it is a motivation to make sure that each one of us perseveres to the end, to share in God's rule, to be given that clothing of white, of purity and of victory. Well again, attention is drawn back to the throne. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. First century cities, of course, weren't weren't lit by electricity and the most obvious demonstration of power was the lightning and the thunder in the night sky. Well, we know about this. You remember that furious squall that came upon Adelaide in November the 13th? Norella and I saw it come, we were on holidays, we were on Selex Beach and we saw it roll in from the Gulf, first as thick clouds with lightning flashing out there and then it sort of began out at sea but it was soon all around us and then it moved 
to you in Adelaide. It was immense power. Notice in verse five that the power comes not from the sky above the throne, it comes from the throne itself. Now that reference to God's raw power is a helpful segue to two more things in front of the throne. First, in front of the throne, were seven, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, says John. Now, seven. Like the number 12, the number seven is significant in apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. The number seven is God's number. When seven is used, it means all of God, the wholeness of God. It's no surprise that the book of Revelation has seven parts, the seven visions within the book. And each, se- each vis- section, there's seven objects of things, seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. Here the number seven means the complete spirit of God. The spirit of God is in front of the throne. He's not separate to it. He is God's powerful presence. He is mentioned just after the lightning and the thunder. God's powerful presence, but able to be in our world. Second, Also in front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Judea was landlocked. It did not border the ocean. It did have the Sea of Galilee, which was renowned for its freak wild storms. For the Jews, the sea was a convulsing, heaving chaos. And we remember back to the first verses of Genesis. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters, over the watery chaos, the unformed cosmos. And it's into that that God spoke and created order in life. And so too, there is order and life in heaven. Some of us will remember the words of the hymn, I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me Sing it with his saints in glory, gathered by the crystal sea. That's from this verse, from verse six. Our world is one of creation disordered, floods, furious squalls, windstorms. They can kill, they can destroy, but around the throne there is no disorder. The order is restored. It's like when Jesus stretched out his hand and ordered the wind and the waves to be quiet and then suddenly this huge storm, this literally mega storm in the Greek, suddenly was quiet and still and in, in an instant everything became calm. The spirit of God, God's powerful presence, the sea of glass, power that turns disorder to order. I love that it's described as a sea of glass because with the lightning and the brilliant presence of the one on the throne, you can imagine a a sea of glass like a mirror And his glory, therefore, would be reflected, magnified upwards from his creation. And then in verse six, in the center around the throne were these four living creatures. The description combines what we know is elsewhere described in the Old Testament of the cherubim and the seraphim. Places like Isaiah six or Ezekiel one, they are magnificent heavenly creatures, but the fact that the description here kind of combines that means that they are greater even than the ones seen back then. Don't be put off by them being covered in eyes, front and back, don't try and draw them, right? They are not monsters. 
This is picture language. It's using imagery, we know, to describe something that we have never encountered. And the point is that they are God's agents. They are all seeing. There is nothing that they do not see. And of course, they represent all of creation. Again, the number four in apocalyptic literature signifies completeness in the earth. Four winds, there's four points of the compass. Here, there are four animals. They represent the whole of the animate creation. And the first is like a lion from the wild animals. The second like an ox, the livestock. The third like a man, humankind. And the fourth like an eagle, the winged creatures. Each of these has six wings, most likely signifying swiftness in carrying out the Lord's will. And again, eyes all around, they and therefore the Lord see Everything, there is nothing in creation that is hidden from the Lord's sight. But now, let's hear what they and the elders say. Because in listening to their response to the one on the throne, we better understand who it is who's seated, and we know what's the right response of ourselves to the one who is seated. Because they tell us, don't they? The right response is worship. From the creatures day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, what does it mean? Separate to creation. He is above it, he is over it, he is ruling it, and in the chapters that follow, will show he's its judge. He's not part of creation. He is separate to it. He is different. Now, saying holy three times speaks of God's exceedingly great holiness. Jesus sometimes would say things twice, truly, truly, I say to you. I'd like to reinforce the sober truth of what he's about to say. It's significant. But three times saying it, God's holiness is exceedingly great. He is not a force from creation. He's not a Disney God. He's not this sort of impersonal force within creation like, um, like you'd see in Avatar, that movie. He's above it. Which is why he's not described in similar terms to the elders or the winged creatures when you think about it. He is, how's he described? The Lord, his name, Yahweh which means the one, he is who he is. He cannot be defined by reference to creation. He is above it. He is the Lord who is God, the one worthy of worship. He is God Almighty, not one God amongst many. He is the one, the ruler of all, and he is eternal. He the one who was and who is and who is to come, eternal, without beginning or end. Without beginning, there was no time when God wasn't. He was not made by anyone else. Now we find this difficult to grasp, don't we? To us everything has a beginning, it must have, because everything we know has a beginning. Except who, well, if, I mean, who made the first one? There has to be one from the beginning. The Lord, the creator, does not have a beginning. It doesn't matter to me that I can't fully grasp this. 
When I think about a cockroach and what a cockroach must think of us, could a cockroach grasp our complexity? I don't grasp my complexity. I'm such a complex person. Uh, it doesn't worry me that a cockroach couldn't grasp me. It doesn't worry that I can't grasp the Lord. It doesn't mean I can't know him. I can know things of him that are true and on that basis worship him. Our inability to comprehend should only increase our wonder and our amazement of him and our worship of him because he is so exceedingly great. And then whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Now, I have read this in the past and I have thought to myself, that sounds good for a moment but probably boring for a long time. <laughs> Doing that eternally. Now, two comments. First of all, we need to see what's being said. So this picture is not some odd arrangement of them falling down, casting down their crowns and then sort of having to get them and pick them back up on the throne and then doing it again and you know, sort of backwards and forwards like that. The point is that the one on the throne is worthy of eternal praise. That's the point. And second, we think it would be boring because there is nothing in our experience that could ever maintain our interest or awe beyond a few minutes. And that speaks to how small our lives are, right? We haven't yet seen him. They have. And the response of those who have seen him and in fact who still are seeing him is heartfelt, spontaneous, willing, delighted, thanks and praise and laying down of their crowns before the throne. Now they're on thrones themselves but seeing him they willingly get off their thrones and just like the Magi came and laid their gifts before the feet of the Christ child and bowed down in worship, so these elders in heaven do the same. They get off their throne and they lay down their crowns before him. What is this? This is the spontaneous recognition that ultimately they know, inwardly convicted, that all glory and power and authority that anyone has comes from him, not from us, and therefore belongs to him, not us. You might think you're a self-made person. You are not. You might think, oh, I've lived my life and I've made really prudent decisions and that's why I am where I am. Guess what? You're not. It's only the Lord who's given you these things. Cast your crown before him in adoration and praise. Just after the death of Queen Elizabeth, stories kept coming out and one delightful one told of the queen who had heard a sermon uh, on this passage uh, from her chaplain in chapel. And after hearing it, she said, I'm so looking forward to seeing the Lord. And the chaplain said, why is that? He said, because I can, I'll be able to cast down my crown before him. Now that that wasn't said regretfully, I'll have to cast down my crown, or begrudgingly, oh, I suppose he's great, but with eager expectation, gladness, because she understood the one on the throne deserves it, right? He is worthy of worship. Why? Listen to the elders, verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor 
and power. Why? Because you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. It comes back to this. The Lord is the creator. He is your creator. He made you and everything that you enjoy in your life. He made it. He made it. Not you. He made it. Everything that has existence has it because of him. He brought it all into being. Nothing came into existence apart from him. More than that, things came into being because he willed it. It was his wish, his desire, his planning that issued forth in what we know and love. Just like an artist might paint a painting or, or sculpt a sculpture, that those things can only come into being because the artist imagined it, designed it, brought it into being. So too, all that exists comes into being only because God the Creator desired that it should be. You see what this means? Uh, first and foremost, he deserves our praise. I don't know what you think heaven will be like. Some of us think that uh, we have a view of heaven with ourselves at the center. Um, living the life on an eternal beachside resort, sort of like a, a life, an eternity of being on getaway. Um, God has shown us what heaven is like. We are there, yes, represented in this vision by the 24 elders, but reality check, we're not in the center. There is one in the center, and it is the one who deserves to be there. The Lord, he, he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power because he created all things. Whether you look at the macro level of the universe so vast that it's impossible to comprehend its dimensions, you know, the, the images that are now beginning to come back through the Webb Space Telescope, or whether you look to the micro level of the DNA and protein molecules and how life is formed, whether you see a sunset with the eye of an artist or whether you hold a newborn baby and you cannot, you cannot help but cry with, with wonder. He is worthy. He is worthy. He is worthy of our worship because he is the creator. And therefore we see on the flip side how wrong it would be, how, what a travesty, what an evil thing it would be to go through our lives enjoying his gifts, appreciating their beauty, but never ever bothering to say thank you or to get to know the creator, to, to give him the praise that's due. Uh, we call that being taken for granted, being used. We hate it when someone does it to us and God, our wonderful creator, deserving of praise and honor and power, the thought of taking his gifts and then ignoring him or living a life as if he doesn't exist, that is, that's reprehensible. That is evil. You see why it's right that everyone hears the gospel and responds? You know, why was it right for our church to run a carols last night? Well, it's because people have a relationship with God, even though they do not know it, don't mishear me here, not as God as their savior, but their creator. He made them, 
And it is right that they should know him to be able to give him the praise that he deserves. And then what a delight to be able to come into an eternal relationship with that one through his wonderful son. But of course we know people resist it. Many people hate this implication and they live their lives fighting against it. Um, when John had this vision in the first century, the Roman emperor was Diocletian. Um, he was the first emperor to endorse a systematic persecution of Christians. So once a year, everyone had to go and worship him as God in the Roman Empire. It was his way of uniting the empire. Uh, most people didn't think him as a God, very few people did, but they, of course they did it, they paid their homage, went through the motions, but Christians wouldn't because to worship Caesar as Lord was blasphemy. But you saw the consequences. To fail to do it was seen to be an enemy of public peace and a you know, kind of secessionist, treason. And that would put you in danger of death. And many people died. So therefore, secondly, what about evil? It's no mistake that John has been given this vision from heaven given what we're told must soon take place after this vision from heaven. What must soon take place is in chapters six to 17, these are the seven seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls of God's wrath. In other words, God's plan to eventually overthrow all evil and gather his people to himself, even though that will involve considerable suffering. We'll walk through that next year, but for now, we need to see that in heaven, there are even hints of this from our description of heaven. There's the sevenfold spirit, God's powerful presence in the world who convicts people in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. This is his work. The winged creatures who are vigilant and who see all and if you keep reading, later on will take a leading role in the outpouring of God's judgment. The lightning, the thunder, the power that comes out from God's throne. What must soon take place? It can be glimpsed just from chapter four if we've got eyes to see. And given that, we must note that the one who is the creator, the one who knows what must happen to put down all evil, he still is the one to be worshipped. You know, there was a time not too long ago when Christians would kneel in worship at church, like the 24 elders, a, a bodily position of humility. That's why churches provided kneelers, of course, because the wooden floor was, or the stone floor was too hard for your knees. We don't have kneelers but I'm going to ask us to do something different now. And in fact, this is, sorry band, could you come up again? Could the band come up again? And Mrs. PowerPoint, we're about to sing holy, holy, holy again. Just give you time. Thanks guys. Thanks for bearing with my spontaneity. <laughs> All right. Um, what I'm gonna do in a moment is, is to ask everyone to physically change your position from your seated position. I'm going to ask you either to stand or to kneel. We're going to worship the Lord. Um, not when we sing, you can stand up for singing, but um, just in what we do at the moment, in a moment. Uh, 
It may be that you will bow your head as well. It may be that you will raise your hands or do something with your arms, okay? I'm asking you to change your posture. I know this is weird, right? But the elders did it, and God deserves it. And by changing your posture, you're telling yourself that this is different to what I normally do. I'm doing something different to honor the one on the throne and to give glory to God. Now, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to lead us three, three times in saying the words of worship here, twice by myself and maybe all together, third time. I'm gonna do it three times, not just once, to help us focus, to get over the weirdness of doing something different, but then to enable us to give glory to God. So now, I'm going to ask you to either stand or kneel. Everyone, please. And perhaps with bowed heads or lifted arms. Just in the quietness of your mind, say these words. Holy... Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. And if you can remember those words, join in with me. If not, just say them in your mind. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Thank you, guys. Let's stand now. You want us to sing holy, holy again? Chris? Holy, holy, yes.
Please take a seat. We're going to have a time of confession now. I'll begin with reading uh, those words again from Revelation and then we'll confess together. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Uh, the words will be on the screen, I hope. Yes, let's, let's say this together. Almighty and ever-living God, mighty creator, eternal Father, you are worthy to receive all glory and honour and power, for you alone are the creator of all. You are magnificent, powerful, wise, glorious. We come before you, not by ourselves, of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us. Forgive us for our ignorance. Too often we fail to see you as you are. We forget you, and in so doing, forget ourselves. We always ought to cast down our crowns before you. In humility, in reverence. But we confess to our shame our sin in not doing this, in exalting our own authority, our own pride, failing to realise that all authority comes from you and robbing you of the worship that is rightfully yours. Have mercy on us, mighty God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Forgive us all willfulness and pride and accept now our offering of thanksgiving and praise of you. Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Amen. Beck is going to come and lead us in prayer. Let's keep praying together. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. We praise you and thank you for who you are, for this picture we have of you in Revelation, our eternal God who is reigning on the throne, the mighty creator, the most holy one, our Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Lord, we pray for our church that this vision of heaven's throne with you ruling would sit with us and stay with us, calming our fears, removing our anxiety, causing us to trust, putting all other concerns in perspective, focusing our prayers giving us patience and confidence 
and more than anything else, causing us to worship you better. You deserve it, Lord. We pray that our lives would increasingly be ones of casting down our crowns before you, living with humility before you. Lord, we have reflected today on your holiness. We pray now that we would indeed be holy and live as your people who have been set apart. May we actually worship you in how we live every single day, in our choices, in preferences, thoughts and actions, reflecting your character more and more. Lord, thank you for the carols event last night and the pageant last week. Thank you for these opportunities to be in the community proclaiming your name. Thank you for answering our prayers, for the great teamwork, for bringing people along, for the beautiful weather, and that many heard the good news of Christ. May this witness bear much fruit for your kingdom. As Basement and Blast finish up this Friday, we ask that their end-of-year event is fun and safe and a great time of celebration. We pray for our wonderful, faithful kids and youth leaders and ask that you grant them a restful break. Thank you that through our church family, you have provided role models and mentors for our young people. For those of us who are travelling over Christmas, we pray for safety and protection. And for those of us who find some aspects of this season difficult, we pray for peace and for the joy that comes from knowing you. And at this Christmas time, we pray for parts of the world where conflict and war is ever-present and the good news of the Prince of Peace needs to permeate. At a time where many receive much, we pray for those who need much. Lord, we ask that you use your people to provide for those who are vulnerable, hungry and hurt. May we take your message of hope, love and justice to the nations who desperately need it. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. We pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.